we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. That's for the reading of God's holy word. We are, of course, reminded in the celebration of the Lord's Supper that it is the blood of the covenant, the new covenant in Christ's blood, of which the writer to Hebrews just spoke. We're going to now recite the two question and answers of Lord's Day 29. Lord's Day 29. We're going to answer these two questions, 78 and 79. as we prepare to hear God's word. So Lord's Day 29, question 78. Do the bread and wine become the real body and blood of Christ? No, just as the water of baptism is not changed into Christ's blood and does not itself wash away sins, but is simply a divine sign and assurance of these things, so too the holy bread of the Lord's Supper does not become the body of Christ itself, even though it is called the body of Christ, in keeping with the nature and language of sacraments. And why then does Christ call the bread his body and the cup his blood, or the new covenant in his blood, and Paul used the words, a participation in Christ's body and blood? Christ has good reason for these words. He wants to teach us that just as bread and wine nourish the temporal life, so too his crucified body and poured out blood are the true food and drink of our souls for eternal life. But more important, he wants to assure us by this visible sign and pledge that we, through the Holy Spirit's work, 
share in his true body and blood as surely as our mouths receive these holy signs in his remembrance and that all of his suffering and obedience are as definitely ours as if we had personally had suffered and made satisfaction for our sins. This the church does believe. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, our Lord, as we continue then our study of the Lord's Supper, having begun last week, and now continuing, and Lord willing, we'll also, in a couple of weeks, conclude then our study of the Lord's Supper. We are being called to see the sacrament in the light of God's Word, and especially in the light of what Jesus Christ has accomplished, that the sacrament is for us a picture and a promise, a powerful sign and seal of God's grace and goodness towards us. And we've heard that, we've seen that already in Lord's Day 28, where the catechism held before us, as it did previously with respect to baptism, the biblical teaching concerning the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. That what it holds before us, what it offers to us, what we must receive as we participate in it, is indeed the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Now in question and answers, or in sorry, Lord's Day 29, and then again in Lord's Day 30, the catechism begins to clear up some issues, begins to clarify its position, continues to sharpen the focus of God's people so that they understand more fully just the riches of this sacrament towards them. And it begins with question and answer 78, and to some degree even the first half of 79, which deal with the same question in many respects, although from a positive perspective and from a negative perspective. Question answer 78 approaches the question negatively. It says, does the bread and the wine become the body and blood, the real body and blood of Christ? And the answer is no. And then in question answer 79, in the first half, we have a more positive response Asking then, why should the scriptures speak of the, ca- of the bread and the wine in these strong terms, calling them the body and blood of Jesus Christ? We're told that Christ has a good reason for these words in that he wants to teach us of his grace towards us. So the first half of 79 and the full answer of 78 present to us something of the wonder, again, the reminder of the teaching concerning the sacrament and seek to prevent us from from falling into a flawed understanding, a false understanding of the sacrament, one that has plagued the church throughout its history. Now the reason we might say, not maybe the full reason, but one of the reasons for why the church has struggled with this question, why we need to ask something like, does the bread and the wine become the real body and blood of Christ? is precisely because the scripture does use stark and startling language concerning the supper. Jesus himself, think of it when he was in the upper room with his disciples, gave to his disciples the bread, saying to them, this is my body. Or as we saw last week also, in response, or in John chapter 6, in response to the demand of a sign from the, the Jews, from the Sadducees, the Pharisees, 
The leaders of the Jews, Jesus said, I will give you my body and my blood to drink. No one can be saved unless they eat my body and drink my blood. That's rather strong, startling language. Indeed, it continued on in the early church's history so that there was an accusation in the early church's history in in the days of the Roman Empire that Christians would gather together and have these cannibalistic feasts that and they participated in incest because they called their spouses, they called each other brother and sister and yet they had romantic relationships with them. How can you have a romantic relationship with your brother or sister? The, the Roman Empire had no way to make sense of these things. What are you doing on Sunday? Well, we're going to participate in the Lord's Supper. What does that mean? I'm going to eat the body and blood of Jesus, my Savior. They couldn't understand, they couldn't make sense of this strong language And maybe that's why we want to be at times a little bit careful when we speak to others about our understanding of the sacrament. Maybe we want to make sure that we emphasize one part, the remembrance part, the believing part of our participation in the Lord's Supper. But we shouldn't miss either the strong language. Since it's biblical, we should be willing to echo it. We've already seen that with respect to baptism, Sacramental language is intentionally strong, making a very tight and close connection between the sign and the thing signified, precisely so that it might impress upon our hearts God's goodness and grace. Sacramental language challenges us to look beyond the elements to the one who's offering them. Again, think of the upper room, Jesus saying, this is my body. Clearly it wasn't. Yet the disciples had to decide, will we trust this Savior? Will we believe his word? When I reach for that bread, am I just reaching for bread or am I taking what he's offering, his body, for me? That sacramental language forces us to respond to our Savior in faith or in unbelief. And the faith that we are called to is not faith in the elements, but faith in Christ's sacrifice, faith in the one who offers himself to us in the elements. It is not the elements that can sustain us. The elements are in themselves good, bread and wine, the staples of life, the staples of our physical body. Our God has taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Because our bodies need also sustenance. Our minds need to be sharp for school or for work. Our strength needs to be be, uh, increased so that we can do the tasks that the Lord has given to us. We need physical sustenance. But we also, as we saw last week, need spiritual sustenance. And bread and wine cannot address that. Like growing children or like tired laborers at the end of the day, our spirits need food. We need to grow. We need to develop in our spirituality. The Christian life is not static. You're not on or off, in or out. There is a growth, a progressive nature to the work of the Holy Spirit in sanctification. And we need that growth. We need to become stronger, even as we heard this morning in the prayer from Paul. Paul's prayer implies not a static Christian spirituality, but a developing one. That it's not enough to just say, I am a Christian. We want to grow in our faith and in our walk with the Lord. 
And how can we do that? The wonderful testimony of the Scriptures is that Christ's body and Christ's blood, and indeed only Christ's body and only Christ's blood, are sufficient for this. There are other attempts that may be had at trying to encourage our hearts and spirits. You think of other religions and you think of Buddhism and being quiet for a moment, emptying your mind, thinking of a Zen cone and allowing all of these distinctions to depart from your mind so that you might be strengthened, so that you might become more one with the one. You think about native spirituality and the idea of going on a spirit quest, going out on a journey out into the forest by yourself, out into the hinterland in order to experience something with your God. There are all of these in spiritual systems, in religious systems, processes, ways in which we uh, are taught, told that we can strengthen ourselves in the faith. And we too speak of these things, about spiritual exercises, about devotions, about reading our word, about praying, about singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, about attending worship, attending catechism, attending kingdom seekers and cadets, attending young peoples and teen club, that these spiritual exercises equip and enable us in order to serve God. And there's a great truth there. But they would be meaningless exercises were it not for the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Were it not for the resurrected body and blood, the living body and blood of Jesus Christ, the victorious over sin and death body and blood of Jesus Christ. What is it that wearies us? What is it that drains our resources? What is it that causes us such struggle in this life? Is it not the headwinds of immorality? Is it not our own sin and temptation? Is it not the temptation and sin of others? The anger of that coworker, the The rage of a, a spouse or a parent? The selfishness of a friend? We all know people. We might be ourselves those that, that cause trouble in relationships. That, that don't bless but burden. It's that sinful nature, it's that human nature that causes us such grief. And how are we then going to bear up under these things? How are we going to live in fellowship? We were called this morning to love one another. How can we possibly do that in ourselves? Oh, we can do as many devotions as we want. We can go on our, our spiritual quest as much as we want. It is insufficient. For it is sin and the darkness of sin that weighs us down and it is only in Christ's body and blood, literally in Christ's body and blood, hung on the cross, nailed to the cross, yet with its holes in the hands and in the feet and with the gash in the side. That body resurrected on the third day, living, breathing, never to die again, eternal resurrection body. It is that body that has been given victory over sin and death. And we need to be united to that body. We need to draw from that body its life-giving power. And the way that we do that, of course, what the Word of God teaches us is that by faith we are united to this Savior. By faith we are bound up with this life-giving vine. 
And that is enough for any of us to know and to confess. The Word of God is true. God who speaks to us is faithful. He says to all who trust in me, I will pour out my grace into their lives so that they are equipped and enabled to do all that I ask of them. Never forget that the Lord promises you to give you what he commands of you. That's both in terms of, you might say, the Ten Commandments, when God commands you to be faithful to your spouse in the Seventh Commandment. He will also give you the grace and strength to be faithful when he calls you to love your neighbor in the Sixth Commandment. He will give you the strength to do that by his Spirit and Word. That's his promise to us. He doesn't say, no, do this on your own. He knows you can't. He says, do this and I will give you the grace to do it. God gives what he commands. And he gives it in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He equips us to love one another because Christ's body and blood is sufficient. And all God has to say to us is this. In Christ you have enough. Believe on him for in Christ you have enough. But our God is a very tender God. He's a very faithful God. And He knows that we struggle with that. That when the mountain of laundry and the crying kids and the stress at work and the bottom line and the troubles in marriage and the grief of the body, the sicknesses that we deal with, and we say, I can't do it. it." And the Word comes to us and the Lord says, you have enough in Christ. And we say, Lord, I just, I'm empty. My tank is empty. And God in His mercy, though His word is sufficient, yet He humbly and condescendingly, mercifully gives to us a little piece of bread and a wee cup of wine. And He says, okay, you know how you can't do it because you don't have the resources? I know you don't have the resources. That's why I've given you my son. Here, taste, drink into your own mouth, into your own stomach comes this blessed evidence, sign and seal of the sufficiency of God's grace to equip you to serve. The Lord says, here is what you need. You need the one who has overcome all of these things. You need the one who knows your struggles and needs, the one who is at my right hand mediating on your behalf right now. You need His power. You need His promise. You need His grace at work within you. So here, here's a little piece of bread and here's a little piece of wine. Take it, for it is to you the body and blood of Jesus Christ, that all-sufficient Savior, that sufficient Savior who provides what we need more powerfully and perfectly than we could ever ask or imagine. God says to us, do you, do you see the bread? Do you see the, did you taste it? Did you drink it? That's how certain you can be that you are now equipped, encouraged, blessed. Jesus' body and blood is sufficient for all your needs, for your struggles and your sorrows, for your doubts and uncertainty. The Lord is enough. His body and blood is enough, sacrificed on your behalf. So take and eat. Now you might think to yourself, really? Or if you're a guest here today, maybe you think, really? 
Can a piece of bread and a piece of bit of wine really accomplish so great a gift? Can I be nourished in my inner being? Can I be strengthened in my spirit? Can I be equipped for the tough slog of my day-to-day life? In this coming week, as I have to fight against sin, as I have to be a good Christian, as I have to love those around me, is this little piece of bread and wine ever going to be enough to fuel my walk with the Lord? Of course, the answer is no. It's not the bread and the wine. It's the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Ah, but you say, I don't get the body and blood of Jesus Christ. I only get the bread and the wine. Well, that's true for some people, sadly. For some people, they only get the bread and the wine. And in fact, if you only get the bread and the wine, there's going to be a real problem. For then you are under judgment. But the promise of God's word is when you eat the bread and drink the wine by faith, then you receive the very thing that it promises. That's why when we read and celebrate in the Lord's Supper, we read from our form in our Forms and Prayers books, and it reminds us as surely as you eat and as surely as you drink, you may be certain that you have received the thing promised. Indeed, Belgic Confession, Article 35, puts it most starkly for us and maybe in a way that even makes us somewhat uncomfortable. For in the Belgic Confession, when it deals with the question of the Lord's Supper, wants us, also in the context of our day-to-day struggle, to know just how great is God's grace for us. And he says there on page 194 in our Forms and Prayers books, now it is certain that Jesus Christ did not prescribe his sacraments for us in vain, since he works in us all he represents by these holy signs. Although the manner in which he does it goes beyond our understanding, it is incomprehensible to us, just as the operation of God's Spirit is hidden and incomprehensible. Yet, says the Confession, and the churches with the Confession, we do not go wrong when we say that what is eaten is Christ's natural body. Not symbolic body, not metaphorical body, natural body. And what is drunk is his own blood. But the manner in which we eat it is not by the mouth, but by the Spirit through faith. Indeed, in Lord's Day 79, even as we have confessed it, we have said these things too. In the second half of 79, we're told that more important, God wants to assure us by this visible sign and seal that we, through the Holy Spirit's work, share in his true body and blood as surely as our mouths receive the holy signs in his remembrance. And that all of his suffering and obedience are as definitely ours as if we had personally suffered and made satisfaction for our sins. Do you hear what the catechism is saying? Do you hear what the Word of God is teaching us concerning the body and blood of Jesus Christ? That body and blood that is alone sufficient to save, which alone is satisfying to God, which alone can strengthen our spirits. Confession, the catechism are saying to us that we are genuinely nourished, genuinely fed. We genuinely receive and are united in intimate fellowship with the very real, at the right hand of God, of which Hebrews 8 spoke, 
body and blood of Jesus. And though the way that we eat this is by the mouth of faith, and though it is indeed a profound mystery beyond our ability to comprehend, just as all the work of the Spirit is beyond our ability to comprehend, why does one come to salvation and the other not? Even in a family where they are taught and trained the same way, one comes to faith, the other does not. The mystery of the Holy Spirit is beyond our ability to grasp. Yet as surely as by faith we partake in the Lord's Supper, says the Catechism, we are genuinely fed by Christ. His suffering and obedience, says the Catechism, which are our only hope of salvation, are definitely ours, as if we had suffered. What a comfort to be able to say that, that I have suffered in Christ for my sins, I have paid the debt for my sins in Christ. And indeed that in Christ I stand justified, holy and righteous as though I'd never sinned or been a sinner, as perfectly righteous as Christ was for me. As surely as I eat that bread and drink that cup, as surely as I feast upon this promised and proffered bread and sacrament. You see, the great blessing of the Lord's Supper is not what it reminds us of, but of of what it gives us, of what we get from it. The mode of our participation is by faith. Make no mistake. Though it is not our faith that makes the supper a blessing. The wealth and the wonder of the sacrament is not our ability to imagine something, to remember Jesus, to think on his sacrifice, The wonder of the sacrament is when we receive that bread and wine by faith, we receive no one less than Jesus. And what a comfort that he is in the trials and tribulations of life. What a comfort to know that in the sacrament the Lord gives to our souls blessed union and communion with the living, reigning Jesus. When we doubt, when we doubt his love for us, when we doubt his word, when we doubt his will, when we struggle, when we struggle with his plan for our life, when we struggle with the path he's placed us on, when we question, when we question what it is that we're experiencing, when our sins rise up and condemn us, when our soul and our conscience says we are unworthy, Do you not see then we can run to the table of our Lord and we can taste and see that the Lord is good. Though none of us is worthy of this grace. Oh yes, too too easily our spirituality becomes badges that we wear or awards that we put on our chest proving our worth and our place at the table of our Lord. Being able to participate in the Lord's Supper becomes then proof that we've arrived or have been counted sufficiently Christian to participate. We even use this approach when it comes to profession of faith, or at least think that that's what profession of faith is about. It's not about that, but that tends to be our our approach to the question of profession of faith. We we think of profession of faith as as our having to be this this pious, this spiritual, sort of like a ride at the, at the fair or at, the, at, at, at Canada's Wonderland. You have to be this tall to go on this ride. Well, you have to be this spiritual. Are you this spiritual? Then you can participate in the Lord's Supper. 
That's not what profession of faith is about. That's certainly not what the Lord's Supper is about. And indeed, maybe we think that because we so often withhold the sacrament from those who are living in sin. And when we do that, we assume that the reason we're withholding the sacrament from them, the reason we don't welcome them at the Lord's table, is because they're not good enough. They're living a bad life. Their terrible sins make them unworthy. Not realizing it's their unrepentance that's the issue. No, the cross and the empty tomb must never be marks of our achievements, but humbling revelations of our need. And the person and work of Jesus Christ, we have sufficient grace for the most unworthy sinner who stands before the throne and with the publican of old says, have mercy on me. Indeed, isn't it compelling that in that story Jesus says, I, who is it that went home justified? It was the publican, not the Pharisee. For all of his spiritual accomplishments, for all of his piety, for all of his ability to answer the questions the right way, for all of his church-goingness, for all of the money he gave in the offering, for everything he did, that man was under judgment. That lowly publican, that despised member of society, that rejected enemy of the people, who humbled himself before God and cried out for mercy, the Lord received. We must never forget that when we come to the Lord's Supper. That when we come to the Lord's Supper, we come to receive the greatest of all gifts. It's the body and blood of Jesus Christ. It's the union and communion with our crucified, resurrected Savior. And how we receive that that sacrament is important. We have to receive it by faith. But we have to receive it confessing our need of that grace too. We have to come not because we're proving our worth. We have to come precisely because we're unworthy. We have to come because I know that I have no hope in myself, no strength in myself, no ability in myself, because I know that I am a sinner in need of this Savior. I am a weak, fallen Fool of a man that needs the grace of God which alone can strengthen and give wisdom. That's how we come. We come because at the table a feast is laid more precious and powerful than anything we'll ever find in this world. What we receive in the sacrament is of most powerful and precious worth. It is Christ himself. But we need to come to the table hungry and thirsty. We must come to the table never depending upon ourself. But we must come because the Lord assures us that we share in this sacrifice. And taking that share, taking that blessing, we must go forth from the table equipped and enabled to serve Him. Never let us say, we who come to the table and receive Jesus Christ, never let us say about the Christian walk and the Christian commitments that we are called to make, I can't do that. I can't do that. When we're called to repentance, let us never say, I can't do that. When we're called to sacrifice, when we're called to serve, when we're called to give ourselves our time and our talents, let's never say, I can't do that. Oh, it is true. We can't do that in ourselves. And when we don't do those things, when those moments come and we fail to live up to the calling that Christ has given to us, we 
start to raise a question. There starts to appear, you might say, a question mark over our Christianity. We say we're united to Christ. We say we're bound up with this vine. We say that we're producing fruit, but there's no evidence of it. In the moment when the harvest is due, in the moment when confession is required, when faith needs to be exercised and love needs to be shown, then we we show that we are impoverished. We show that we are dead. We show that we have no life in us. And then a question mark arises. Is this genuinely a Christian? Is this person genuinely in Christ? Oh, in ourselves, we have no strength whatsoever. But we are not in ourselves. We who believe in Jesus Christ, we who come to the table of our Lord and eat by faith the bread and the wine given in remembrance of him. Oh no, then we have Christ in us and we are in Christ. And his strength is sufficient. Indeed, isn't that the very promise of God to the Apostle Paul, when you are weak, then I am strong? Is that not the promise of God to all of his people that he will sustain us and strengthen us and equip us and enable us to bear up under all the trials of this life? Let us never say, I can't do that. In Christ we have been given grace. In Christ, we have received the one who is able to do far more than we could ever ask or imagine, even as we heard this morning in Ephesians 3. And that's the assurance the Lord bestows upon us. That's the grace that the Lord gives to us. That's the power that he works within us. We who come to the table of our Lord to feast upon it, his grace is sufficient. That's what the table reminds us of. You don't need the bread and the wine. You need the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Because that body and blood has been poured out for you. That body has been broken for you. Your sins are forgiven in Him. Your salvation is secure in Him. Ah, but how do I know that I'm in Him? How do I know that I have Him? Well, come, take and eat by faith. Eat not with the mouth, but with the mouth of the Spirit. Eat because you know what you're being given. When you put that bit of bread in your mouth, when you put that bit of wine in your mouth, know that you are being handed the body and blood of Jesus Christ and trust the one who hands it to you, the Savior himself, who says, this is my body and this is my blood. Trust his promises. Trust his word. Trust that you share in his sacrifice and live in that trust. Live in that trust each and every day of your life. That Christ is in you and that you are in Christ. That you are alive even as he is even now at his Father's right hand. You see, the catechism, it wants us to understand the rich blessing, the feast of grace. It wants us to come to the table of our Lord without all of the distractions, with all of the deceit, the dishonesty, with all of the schemes that man has created in order to explain away These challenging words. Oh, there's a tension in the Lord's Supper. There's a tension here we cannot always resolve. But we don't come with intellectual responses. We don't come with logical explanations. We come only with faith. And we say, of this Savior, I am certain that He is sufficient. And that by His grace, though I'm utterly unworthy, I have a share in His sacrifice. Let's thank Him for that in prayer. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this gift of the sacrament. We thank you that we may receive it by faith, exercising the faith that you work in us by your Holy Spirit. 
we who are united to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Lord, what a privilege it is to know that we are united to him. United to him so that we stand before you even now as though we never sinned or been sinners. What a comfort. What a glorious grace. But more than that, that we have strength now to go forth into this week and to bear up whatever trials we may be called to, to endure. Lord, some of them can be very burdensome, very heavy, very hard. But Christ is enough. And we share in him and he in us. And so help us, O heavenly God and Father, to face the challenges of this world, not in our own strength, not boasting of our own abilities, not burnishing our medals for all to see, but instead humbly and dependently resting only in Jesus Christ and looking to him for help and salvation. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Then number 484, rather, 484. On the good and faithful God has sent his love, when they call, he sends them blessings from above. Stand in awe and sin.